If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I would invite you now to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 13. Um, before I uh, read the Scripture, I, I did just want to say thank you to you for having me here today. It's a privilege to be with you. Um, Jim and Jerry and I were talking earlier before the service. I don't know how many years it's been since I've been here, but I have been here before on a couple of occasions and having a, some connection with you all through Presbytery and through those two men in particular, because I've known them for probably more years than we care to remember now. But uh, it's a great privilege to be here with you. Uh, I have a lot of love and respect for your pastor, Richard, and um, just very thankful. So I bring you greetings from Christ Community. Um, it's wonderful how God ordained that, that this would be one of the Sundays that you pray for our, our church. Uh, I'm here to tell you that the folks there love and care for you as brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we do send you uh, our greetings in that way as well. well let's, uh, let's turn now to God's Word. Um, if you would, stand with me, please. Um, before I read the scripture, uh, let me pray for us. Father, help us now as we look at your word. I pray that you would give us understanding. Uh, we're thankful that your word is so clear and plain that a child can understand. Uh, and at the same time, it can be so uh, high and lifted up that the, the wisest man in the world cannot fully plumb its depths. We need your spirit, or we won't understand. Uh, we need your spirit, or we won't obey. And so, Father, would you help us now by your spirit? Uh, would you work through your word? Uh, would you work in such a way that we would even hear the voice of Jesus uh, through your word faithfully proclaimed? So, please, Father, examine all of our hearts, and please guard my mouth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Uh, this is the word of God. Uh, please be seated. At Christ Community Church, we've been uh, working our way slowly through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we have um, gone through it week by week, one of the things that we have seen and that we're trying to emphasize to our folks is that Matthew's gospel has a central message, which is the kingdom of heaven has arrived in Jesus. It's here. 
It's not just something we have to wait for off in the future somewhere. Jesus himself said, the kingdom is here. And Jesus claims very clearly uh, in his ministry, in his life on this earth, and Matthew records for us, he claims to have all authority over all nations for obedience and for the fulfilling of all that the prophets have said. So Matthew's a very, very important book. And in it, uh, I've been so thankful for us to be able to slow down and look because there is much in this gospel that in our familiarity, sometimes we just read right past and we don't even think about. Uh, so um, if I can go ahead and make an application before I even start preaching, it would be this. As you read God's word, slow down. Slow down and think about what you're reading. Uh, we have so much here that God has given to us. And for that, we should be so thankful. But by way of introduction to this particular text, I was thinking and uh, we were reminded as we got to spend some time with a few of our grandchildren uh, yesterday afternoon. But one of the joys of being a parent and being a grandparent too is when that uh, bundle of cuteness called a baby starts to begin to talk. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? When they can begin to communicate with you, uh, you anticipate it for a long time, you're excited when they speak their first words. Um, but usually, sometime later, uh, there's a desire that maybe there wouldn't be so much talking. Maybe you've had one of those children who once they start, they just won't stop. Um, or maybe because of some of the words they speak. You know, kids do pick up on things and things they've heard that they shouldn't have heard, they often repeat at the worst times, don't they? But there's one particular thing that we really don't want to hear our children say, and that is we don't want to hear our children say no in response to us. When we give them uh, something they are to obey, when we ask them to do something, when we give them instruction, we do not want the response of no. There's something far worse than a parent hearing no from their child, and that's when someone hears Jesus and tells him no. It's far, far worse. And according to our text, it results in less opportunities to hear him. Isn't that what happened here in the passage I've just read for you? Jesus comes to his hometown. He teaches in the synagogue. And if you had to summarize it, you would have to say the response from the people is no. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to obey. Jesus uh, often in this gospel has highlighted the importance of listening to him because he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And so he should be listened to. Earlier in chapter 13, when the disciples asked Jesus, why, do you, why are you speaking to people in parables? Jesus said this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We're back a little bit farther in chapter 13, where Jesus addresses Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum for not listening. And he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. To listen to Jesus with your ears but not to obey is a serious thing. Maybe it's most clear in what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say there's nothing worse than saying no to Jesus. It brings about consequences. And in our text, the specific consequence is that when these folks don't want to hear, Jesus deliberately, intentionally, does not do many works there. But let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into the text itself. In this text, we're given a, a relatively brief scene from Jesus' life. Uh, it follows his teaching on parables, both to the crowds and to his disciples. At this time, Jesus' fame is growing, but not everybody is glad about that. The scribes and the Pharisees are becoming more confrontational. They've gone so far as to accuse Jesus of being joined to Beelzebub. Even his mother and brothers and sisters have thought he is out of his mind. Many of the very things Jesus warned his disciples to expect are being experienced by Jesus himself. And now in this particular scene, Jesus' rejection is from his hometown, from the people he grew up with. And it leads to something I don't think occurs in Matthew's gospel up until this point, and that is Jesus doesn't do many mighty works. That's how he responds to their unbelief. 
So the way I want to look at this text is uh, as, as much as possible, I want to try to keep it simple as far as an outline, an explanation, and hopefully a lot of application. I think that's what this text uh, directs us to do. So the first point, if you're keeping notes, the first point would be this, just very simply, and it, it, it sounds just pretty factual. <laughs> Jesus goes home, teaches in their synagogues, or in their synagogue, excuse me, and is rejected. We find that in verses 53 and 54. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, the word for teach here that I just read suggests that Jesus began teaching and then was interrupted. This was not like uh, if, if I say something and two of you kind of lean over and whisper quietly something, that's not what was taking place. This is people talking out loud and disrupting Jesus' teaching. That's the kind of word that is used. So he begins teaching, and then there's a disruption. They're astonished and asking where he got his wisdom. Uh, we'll go on with that uh, statement in just a moment. But another observation, this is Nazareth. As I already said, uh, he's back in his hometown. It's his first and only return to his hometown after beginning his public ministry. As far as we know, what's recorded in the Gospels, we see that in, uh, earlier in this Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, but also in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke's account of, this, uh, of the first time he returns to his hometown, Jesus reads from Isaiah, and as he reads... He declares, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You may recall after he read from the scroll, he sat down and began teaching. And the folks in the synagogue initially all speak well of him. They marvel at the gracious words that come out of his mouth. But then as he goes on to explain that his ministry would include and even prioritize people outside of Israel, scripture tells us the people were enraged and they led him out of town with the intention of throwing him off the cliff. That's how they responded his first time back home. This time, they're rejecting him as well. Rejection in Nazareth is not anything new to Jesus. But it must have been especially hurtful. I want you to think about that. We often think of Jesus in his deity, and we forget about his humanity. Jesus was fully God, and fully man. That means that Jesus experienced much of what we experience. What's it like for you when you go back where you grew up? The people who knew you the best. The people that you would desire love and respect and recognition and appreciation from. These are the people who knew Jesus not only as a boy growing up, but as a carpenter. And the word for carpenter that's used in the scripture indicates more than just working with wood. It's a master craftsman. Jesus had learned that from his father, Joseph, and he labored there for how many years? He didn't start his public ministry until he was 30. So there he is, back home, rejected. And that rejection wasn't just a quiet rejection either. Think about what that would have been like. I want to make some application right away about this. And I want to remind you from the scripture, Jesus grew up as a normal baby. 
He wasn't doing miracles as a child. He didn't somehow miss out on pain and discomfort and even having to learn things. It's an astounding thing to me to read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. For one thing, it's a reminder that he suffered, but for another thing, doesn't it strike you as odd that Jesus learned? Why do we think that way? Because we only think about his deity. We don't think about his humanity. Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. His father taught him skills. The one who was there when the universe was created and without whom nothing was made that has been made. When he took on flesh and became a man, he limited himself and he had to learn. Why am I making such a big deal out of that? Well, it's because many times when we go through hard things, we somehow think that Jesus doesn't understand us. He might understand difficulties in general, but he doesn't really understand me. He doesn't understand the hard things that I've been through. Well, I want to correct you in your thinking when you think that way. Jesus understood betrayal. Jesus understood being misunderstood. Jesus understood being ridiculed and rejected. Just because he never sinned doesn't mean he never experienced hurt. As a matter of fact, it means he felt it more deeply because he never responded in sin. We often do, when we get hurt, respond sinfully. We, we do something to stop the pain, and at times, because the pain is so bad, we don't care what it takes. We just want it to stop. Jesus never responded sinfully to any of the things he experienced, any of the suffering that he experienced. He knows the full range of our emotions. He knows the difficulty that we experience. I want you to understand it's not just me saying this. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are told this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a double negative there. It's a way of really emphasizing something. It's impossible for Jesus not to sympathize with us. Let that sink in. Yes, Jesus is high and lifted up. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's the sovereign over everything, all dominions, all powers. And he's waiting for the day when all of that will be put under his feet, when it'll be visible to us. But he is also fully a man. And in those two natures of God and man, that's where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus understands you. He understands your sorrows, your difficulties, your struggles, your hurt. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us in that passage, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We may find mercy, or excuse me, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands your pain. Pain that you go through as a church, pain that you go through individually, Jesus understands. Don't miss that from this text. But not only that he understands your pain, also that he is with you in your pain. Uh, one of my favorite passages to read with people who are going through a hard time comes from Isaiah 43. Um, again, that was a providential thing that Richard selected 
that for our assurance of pardon this morning. But those first five verses or so in Isaiah 43, God promises certain things. And because the Father and the Son are absolutely united, we know this is true of Jesus as well. And we know it from all the places in Scripture where he specifically says things like, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If anyone comes to me, I, I will in no wise cast them out. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. No one can take them out of my hand. Our Father in heaven expresses it in Isaiah 43 in this way. Uh, I'll just pick up midway. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, fear not, for I am with you. I want you to know in your pain this morning, in your suffering, whatever that pain and suffering may be, you are not alone. Jesus is with you and he understands. He understands the depth of that hurt. He understands what it means to be betrayed. He understands what it looks like when you're not appreciated by those who know you best. Even when that pain comes, Jesus knows. Well, we not only find in this text that uh, Jesus comes and begins teaching and is rejected, we find a little bit more of out about what the rejection looks like. And that's the second thing I want to consider with you. Uh, in verses 54 through 57, we find a lot of movement described in a very few words. Let me, let me read it again for you. Uh, I'll pick up in the, the middle of verse 54. Um, they were astonished. These people who heard him in the synagogue, they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. Do you see the movement here? Astonishment becomes cynicism. Cynicism becomes taking offense, and taking offense becomes unbelief. It's, it's just a progression. That's how it works. Jesus taught in such a way that his hearers are astonished. They cannot deny the validity and the authority of his words, but it's very much like when the sower sows the seed and it goes on a rocky path, and the birds just come and snatch it up. It doesn't even begin to take root. Jesus' words don't even begin to take root in their heart. Because right away, their response is astonishment, and then questioning his authority. We do use questions that, sometime, that way sometimes, don't we? Not so much to get information, but to make a statement. That's how... These folks are using a question. They're not asking, where did Jesus get this great learning? Because I want to get it too. I want to know where to go to get this great learning. 
No, they are questioning his authority. What makes him think he can instruct us? There's nothing special about this guy. Where did he get these words and the ability to do these mighty works? He's just, this is the carpenter's son. We know his mother and his brothers and his sisters. They're all right here with us. They cannot deny his power and his wisdom. So they seek to cast doubt. It's very much like the Pharisees' accusation back in chapter 12 after Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Um, Talk about someone who is totally unable to help themselves. What could be any worse than that? Demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Jesus heals him. The crowds say, can this be the son of David? And the Pharisees say, it's only by Beelzebub that he does this. The astonishment becomes cynicism. The the questions are not meant to be answered, but to make a statement. Um, If I can use a little bit of a humorous uh, illustration of that, perhaps I'll just address you men and husbands. Perhaps you've come home sometime or uh, you've been home for a little while, your wife isn't, there's a nice big plate of freshly baked cookies there on the counter, and you start helping yourself, and soon your wife comes home and says, did you really eat all of those cookies? Now, is, is she asking for information, or is she making a statement? Probably making a statement, probably well-deserved. This statement was not well-deserved. It wasn't a real question It was an evaluation of who Jesus is. They're rejecting his authority. Pretty soon, that means they have to take offense. This offense is not because Jesus has done anything wrong or sinful. It's because the truth coming out of Jesus' mouth exposes their sin. And it can't be refuted. People who take pride in their own personal righteousness don't want a Savior who declares that in order to be righteous, you must acknowledge that you are not righteous and put your trust in him. It's not a message that the natural man wants to hear. And so they take offense at him. Perhaps we see something similar in our culture today. It used to be that people would respond to the claims of Christ just by saying, well, I don't agree. But now it's not enough to just not agree. People are offended that we hold a position different than they do, which implies that they are wrong. And so they can become very angry as we proclaim the truth. Sometimes even it results in violence, doesn't it? If if you hold on to a truth claim that that indicates that my life is wrong in some way, I'm I'm not just going to have a difference of opinion with you. You are my enemy. You are my adversary. I'll do anything I can to make you be quiet. Jesus tells us that he knows what is going on in the hearts of his hearers when he makes this declaration, a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, in his own household. The word for without honor means to despise. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus experienced that again and again. Sinful humanity, apart from the gracious work of God's Spirit in their heart, will not accept Jesus. They will not accept his claims. They reject the very one who came to seek and to save lost sheep like us. 
Jesus is experiencing this yet once again. There's one more uh, element of this that is really important to take notice of, and that is uh, the, the word that Matthew ascribes to the, these people is unbelief. It's an important word to notice. What does it mean? Well, the people in the synagogue that day are opposing Jesus, uh, but it's more than just opposition. It's more than disagreement. In the Greek, the word used is the negative form of pistis. And pistis means not only to be persuaded, but also to rely upon or entrust. It's a word that involves the mind being convinced and action being taken. Uh, one example of that is uh, the distinction that James makes when he's talking about the importance and necessity of faith that produces works. When he writes, it's good to believe that God is one. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is a, a belief that cannot deny the truthfulness of what someone says, but refuses to submit and obey. And that's what was true of the people in the synagogue that day. It's not just that they were unconvinced. It's that they would not submit. They would not obey. And before we move on to look at how Jesus responds to this unbelief, I want to consider some more applications with you because the sad reality is if we're not careful, we can experience unbelief too. Uh, that's, that's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to recognize. But God warns us of this in Hebrews chapter 3. He's addressing believers here. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. The author to Hebrews there quotes from Psalm 95, which is a reference back to uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, where Jesus gave those words, or excuse me, where God gave those words to his people. And so by way of application, um, I would implore you as I implore myself, watch out. Uh, three specific ways. Watch out for when your heart denies Jesus' authority to speak into all of your life and all of your experience. Uh, I've known professing believers who, in the midst of the hurt of being sinned against, will say something along these lines. I know that Jesus should be enough for me, but right now he isn't. So don't talk to me about Jesus. Um, that's about the saddest words that, uh, that I've ever heard. Um, it's been spoken to me as a pastor, as a counselor. Don't tell me about Jesus. There's some part of my life that the truth about Jesus doesn't apply to. That's basically what they're saying. That's something that all of us have to watch out for. Sometimes the depth of the hurt is such that we can find ourselves not wanting to hear about Jesus. Sometimes it's not the depth of the hurt. It's because there's other sin going on in our life and 
we know that if we take all of our heart to Jesus, then all of our heart is liable to be exposed and we don't want that. And so I've seen people not want to hear about Jesus in every aspect of their life. And so my plea to you and to myself, because I need this as well, is watch out if there's any area of your life where you want to deny Jesus' authority. Second thing to watch out for, watch out for when you say no to Jesus in the little things. And there really aren't any little things, are there? But sometimes we can quantify or try to qualify various issues in our life and we say that some things are not as important. But brothers and sisters, it's little acts of rebellion that lead to a hardening of the heart. That's what the Hebrews is warning us against. Little acts of rebellion lead to bigger acts of rebellion. Hearts usually are not hardened all of a sudden. It's a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And so listen to Jesus every day. Don't think of any area of your life as outside of his authority. And don't think of any sin as little. Don't think of any shortcoming as little. And thirdly, watch out for the difference between doubt and rebellion. There is a difference, a very significant difference. Sometimes we have questions, we have doubts. Think of Job. Doubt is when we ask why. But doubt will always lead you to Jesus. Rebellion says no and leads you away from Jesus. So be aware, watch out for what's going on in your heart. Are you struggling? Go to Jesus. Are you unsure? Go to Jesus. Do you wonder what in the world God is doing in your life? Go to Jesus. You'll never be turned away. Don't say no. Not about any area of your life. Not about any sin. The last thing I want to consider with you from our text is how unbelief is met with restrained revelation. We're not left wondering how Jesus responds to unbelief. He tells us and he shows us what a sobering statement it is there in verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In Mark's gospel, when he gives us the, the record of this event, he records that Jesus only healed a few sick people. I'm actually kind of glad for that. A little reminder that even when there is so much unbelief, it doesn't prevent Jesus' compassion and mercy and power for a few. I'm thankful that Jesus did that. But we do see this restraint that Jesus exercises. It's not that he can't do mighty works. He chooses not to. It's an important distinction. Jesus doesn't perform on demand for skeptics. The purpose of his mighty works is to function as signs of his identity, his authority. It's been that way all the way through Matthew. Jesus doesn't do miracles just to do something to draw attention. It's a very clear, specific purpose. And if you're reading through Matthew, you will notice it's around this area where uh, it becomes even more clear that there are only two responses to Jesus. The opposition to Jesus is rising as you continue reading through the gospel. 
And it becomes more and more clear, nobody can remain neutral with Jesus. They either say yes or no to him. And if they say no, he withholds the evidence of who he is. And so our text leaves us with a question this morning. What about me? How do I respond to Jesus? Because it's not enough just to look back and see what happened then. We have to bring this to our lives, our hearts today. And so I would ask you to ask yourself, even as I ask myself, are there areas of my life where unbelief is evident? And you don't have to answer out loud because I can kind of answer for you because none of us are perfectly holy in our experience. And so more than likely, there are areas of your life that you are not desiring Jesus to speak fully and completely and totally to. So my encouragement to you this morning is to instead ask the question, what are the areas of my life where unbelief shows up? The only way to get an answer to that is to ask more questions and Here's just a few you can ask. First one is, am I listening to Jesus? Am I participating in in corporate worship? You might say, now, Bill, why are you asking that? I'm here this morning. Well, that's true. You are here. That's a good thing. How important is it to you to be in corporate worship? Uh, How prepared are you when you come to corporate worship? Uh, How ready are you to hear God's word expounded and applied. Um, I would plead with you, pray for your pastor. (laughs) Pray for other pastors too. We need God's Spirit to help us to be able to speak the truth to you, even as you need the Spirit's help to receive the truth and to respond as God would have you. Uh, How about reading your Bible? That's one thing most Christians struggle with. And um, so often it's because we just get used to the Bible. It's so easy. We have, all of us have multiple copies at home, right? You might have a Bible in every room. Our lives are busy. It's hard to take the time, but there is nothing to open up the fullness of our life to what Jesus says, like simply reading his word. It's the only way that we get to know him better. Oh, I would plead with you, don't let other things interfere. And I would confess to you, it It's been about a month or two ago now that we went out to visit our daughter and son-in-law in in Wyoming. We got to go camping in a remote area, and uh, RJ was bow hunting for elk, and I was one of his pack mules. I didn't have a permit or anything. The, The scenery was gorgeous. And sitting and seeing the wonder of God's creation um, made for a lot of good time praying. But at the end of that week, as we went back to their home in Cheyenne, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had my Bible with me, but I hadn't cracked it open the whole week. We'd get up early to get out to the location where we were going in the dark. There were busy things to do with camping, and I left my Bible closed that whole week. I knew why there was a spiritual coldness in my heart even though there had been evidence of God's creation and God's glory and times of prayer, I hadn't 
received God's instruction for me through his word. I share that with you to let you know it's not any easier for pastors. So what I'm telling you, I'm telling me, we have to spend time in God's word. That's where we hear Jesus. We hear Jesus through his word. So I would plead with you, make time for that. Second question, is my heart tender towards Jesus? Am I, am I eager to hear him correct me and challenge me and expose every aspect of my heart? That's what he does through his word, by his spirit. That's why he sent his spirit, right? To enable us to see and know the truth and how it applies to our hearts. And lastly, am I quick to obey Jesus? Uh, often in our lives, trouble comes in order to expose what's truly important to us. You never know how much you want something or think you need something until you don't have it, right? What are the things that we think are most important? What are the things we can't live without? If you put anything in that slot other than your relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ, then there's something that you're elevating higher, or at least as high as, God. And what, what happens when you elevate something higher than God? We're worshiping an idol, aren't we? And the Bible talks about how we have idols in our hearts and how they hinder us from seeing clearly. And so I would plead with you, ask, Am I quick to obey? What, what is it that I'm devoted to? What do I hate? Do I hate the things that Jesus says or that, that Jesus says he hates? Or do I entertain those? What is it that I love? At the end of the day, what, what brings me the greatest satisfaction and joy, a sense of being complete, a purpose for my life? Is it my relationship with God through Jesus? Or is it something else? Anything else is unworthy only Christ deserves that from my heart. And so in this uh, rather simple text, uh, a, a very kind of ordinary occasion in Jesus' life, there's some huge things for us to learn. And I think I would close by simply encouraging you uh, today and this week, uh, read often Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Are you listening to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we ask for your help. It's much easier to talk about this than to practice it. And so, Father, for myself and for all of us gathered here, I pray that you would help us um, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, work in our hearts by your spirit. Uh, enable us to hear the voice of Jesus, to be eager to hear it and eager to respond with belief, with trust, with obedience uh, to all that he reveals to us. Father, help us not to be like those who say no to Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Let's continue our...
worship with